HHW presents Who Reads the Watchmen? Issue number three by the Legion of Dudes. Immediately following this announcement, you will see a flash and hear a beep. These should happen at the same time. His beagle! You are like the buzzing of flies to him! Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Dude. Dude is Dudeness, Shooter, El Duderino. Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. Uh-oh. He don't look happy. He's been using Brand X. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. And now, here's the dudes. It's nine minutes to midnight. Welcome to A Half Hour Wasted Presents, Who Reads the Watchmen, issue number three. I'm Jim Dietz, head chef of the Gunga Diner and Gypsy Cafe, along with my fellow panelists, legionnaires and minions, the Legion of Dudes. Gentlemen, would you like to introduce yourselves, please? How you doing? I'm Ken Morgan. Hi, this is Dan. Hi, I'm Johnny M. Hey, it's Adam Umack. I'm Russell Latham. And thanks for tuning into our 12-episode odyssey through the fictional realm of the end of days. Listen in or interact live in the spoiler-filled roundtable discussion and analysis of the most celebrated graphic novel of all time. Visit the Half Hour Wasted Forum at comicforums.com, where you can post your thoughts on all aspects of The Watchmen in the greatest comic-related online community in the universe. Send all of your comments to us via email at comments at legionofdudes.com. John, I think uh, you something you wanted to say about our friends over at paneltopanel.net. Yes, uh, John, very nice guy at paneltopanel.net. I had told him about what we were doing with our Watchmen shows, and uh, he was nice enough to get back to me and say how much he enjoyed the shows, and he's been a great friend to the show. It's paneltopanel.net. They are an online store. You can grab comics and trades and back issues there but they're much more than that they have a great community there's a blog there's reviews there's art they actually put out their own comics so they're creators so i like to ask everybody to check it out if you get a chance panel to panel.net thank you very much to them for the mention we really appreciate it now i'm going to hand off our discussion to our friend uh, ken morgan with uh, the forum comments from issue two we've uh, again had some great feedback from uh, from issue number two and I'm going to go through just a couple of them right now. First off, we've got one from uh, Donnie, Donnie Salvo. First off, you guys are doing a terrific job. Second, I've read this first in single issues back in the 80s when I was about 10 or 11, which explains why I'm so blank up today. I've also uh, read the trade two or three times, and you guys are pointing out the symbolisms and other things I've missed even after three read-throughs. Thanks to you guys. I'm reading it again along with you, and I've been enjoying it even more. Can't wait for the next episode. Keep up the good work. Again, it's Donnie Salvo of the Reality Wasted Podcast. That's great. A, Thank you, Thanks Donnie. a lot, Donnie. That's great. You know, and, and I'm getting the same thing on my first read-through. I'm just seeing things I never would have seen on my own. Hey, did you guys get a chance to meet Donnie at the, the Super Show last week? Was he there? He was supposed to come on Sunday, but uh, I didn't get a chance to catch well, him. Well, I don't even know that he showed up. I was out talking to Brad about him, and even Brad was saying he didn't see him. He doesn't think he actually made it down. Yeah, I didn't see him either, and I was kept on the lookout, and I, I didn't see him either. I was there, but you guys didn't catch up with me either. That was by choice. Moving on. Moving on. And, Jim, this one was at you. It's pointed to you, and I think you responded in the forum, but I thought we'd bring it up on the show. Uh, this is from Max Headroom. 
Holy crap, I remember the 1980s a bit differently. Reagan did his bombing Russia joke in 1984. We were out of the recession and inflation and employment was more was more than McJobs by 1985 and 86 when Watchmen came out. On Thatcher and homosexuality, Thatcher was one of the few conservative MPs to support Leo Abisi's bill to decriminalize male homosexuality. Uh, she did have some backwards views on gays in the 80s, but when she... But when did she want to put anyone in camps? Can someone point that out to me, please? And finally, I'll get off politics. I just thought that was something we can revisit if you wanted to. Well, I just wanted to say, if you go further down in the same thread, uh, one of our uh, listeners from the U.K. Uh, filled in some of the blanks there for us. Uh, there was a point in time where some of uh, the Tory party wanted to put homosexuals in, um, in camps, uh, quarantine camps, uh, back in the early days of AIDS. And if you go further down the thread, uh, I'm pretty sure, I can't believe, I can't remember the name of the poster. It's a few posts down. But um, they, they fill in the blackness for me on that. Plus, uh, the 80s, it's very much you know, a matter of perspective. I think so, a lot of it would... I know Watchmen is tough to talk about without talking about politics. But, I mean, I only have my own perspective to go by. Sure. So I don't want to offend anyone else's political views. This is an open discussion. And uh, I'd like to, re- to remain that way. That's cool. I just wanted to see if we can get an opportunity to just bump it up a little bit because I, w- I missed that discussion. Uh, last it's thing. Bi- it's all big hair and leg warmers to me. That's it. That's right. That's it. And and the girls looked even weirder. <laughs> and and, and jo- John and John Hughes montages. And Mr. T. Yep. Don't forget Mr. T. Last one I pulled from the thread the the thread for us was from a friend Umar, the fixer over at the Fixers Hideout. What we have to remember when reading Watchmen is a time it was created. The Cold War was real to all of us, including the fear that sooner or later the U.S. and the USSR would have the missiles flying at the drop of a coin. The Cuban Missile Crisis wasn't just a point of history, but something that felt like it just happened yesterday, and all the fiction and science fiction reflected this. Uh, I think that's why it's hard for a lot of fans today to get the scope of the story. Today, all of the tropes of the Cold War seem as distant as as the Civil War, especially since America is the only real organized superpower and has all the missiles to keep everyone else at bay. I urge all who read it for the first time to consider these things because they are important to to the overall story. And as someone who has reread The Watchmen at least once or twice a year since it was printed, this is a conversation I would love to be a part of. So, you know, maybe one day we'll bring him on for a show. That'd be great. He makes some excellent points about the context of the time with Watchmen. I mean, it it would only make sense that take play it would take place in the eighties, really. Right. And they're the three I pulled out. I don't know if anybody else has anything they want to jump in that they remember reading. I just kind of had a, a general comment about Watchmen so far. Um, a lot of people had talked to us, Ken and Russ, at the Super Show, and they were, I guess, they were just wondering, you know, if the Legion of Dudes uh, stuff is going to be, you know, this intense all, all the time. And I, I would say as far as, like, the, well, how deep down the rabbit hole we're going to, I think this conversation really is Watchmen-specific. I, I really can't see us going panel by panel with any other book other than this. I mean, I, right. I think we're making these issues special ones. And it's as yeah. far as, you know, how the show's going, I, I think if you guys listen to the Batman Year One episode, I mean, that's a really different episode than The Watchmen. Oh, gosh, yeah. I think The Watchmen demands that you have to, uh, you know, have that level of, of detail because the symbolism is so deep in so many layers. That's one of the reasons we, we selected this book. And I also know, I mean, you know, the I know the cover to number three that we're going to do in just a second is, you know, Fallout Shelter, but, you know, just to calm your own fears, I do not think anything that we will do in the future will be this, like, geez, it's like sandpaper on my brain, this stuff is so intense. <laughs> that is true. I think we are going to be doing some other fairly deep uh, texts, but I don't think anything's going to uh, compare to this. 
No, no. certainly not in a panel-by-panel panel way. No way. Right. Speaks to the greatness of the work. Let's go ahead and hand it off to Russ, and we'll uh, start on our um, our discussion topic on this episode, which is the uh, Watchmen movie lawsuit that's going on. Uh, I know from the trailer we were supposed to see the Watchmen movie in March but, uh, of 2009, but now that might not be happening, Russ. Yeah, uh, you know, the more I've, I, I did a lot of research and prep for the episode on the lawsuit itself and the history and, you know, what might be coming. And at first I was pretty staunchly in the camp of it's going to, you know, we're, we're going to see it on release date, you know, without fail. And after reading a bunch of stuff, you know, it, it may or may not happen. I, I definitely think we're still going to see it, I, you know, but, it, you know, there, I think there's a good possibility it could be delayed. So, um, again, today's the topic we're talking about now is the, uh, Washington lawsuit. It's, it's had a lot of um, buzz in the in the press in the last week or two. There's been a lot going on. I think there's a lot that's confusing about it. So um, as we're doing for each of our Watchmen episodes, we're picking one item to kind of give a discussion to kick off the issue, um, which you know may or may not necessarily be related to the issue specifically, but you know just um, related to the Watchmen as a whole. Um, so in my research, I thought it would be best you know to start off with the history of this movie and, and where things uh, started and where they're going to. So originally, Warner Brothers had given, or DC Comics, had given the rights to the Watchmen movie over to Fox. And uh, Joel Silver was picked as a producer, and Sam Hamm uh, was actually drafted to do the script in 1988 after Alan Moore turned it down and didn't want to have anything to do with the motion picture script. Um, which is interesting because Sam Hamm was kind of the hot item right around that time since he was the one that wrote the, the script for the Batman movie that came out in, in 89. So, so they, you know, they definitely were trying to capitalize on, on that success or that pending success at, at this point. Um, so it, that's where it kind of sat for a while, didn't really go anywhere. Um, and then it ended up going over to Terry Gilliam was tapped to direct it. Um, and it kind of passed around, passed around for a while. And ultimately, in, two, in the year 2000, Terry Gilliam deemed it unfilmable. He just thought, that, you know, given budget constraints and technology constraints, that you just couldn't do the movie any justice by putting it to film. So he bowed out. Um, after that, well, Lawrence it's kind, Gordon, it's kind of amazing. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say it was. It's kind of amazing that somebody like Terry Gilliam, who made such incredibly bizarre films like Munchau, Baron Munchausen in Brazil would think that this movie, of all the other uh, unfilmable movies he made, was unfilmable. Yeah, it was, and it, it had a lot to do, I guess, with, with the script. You know, he really thought in order to do it justice, it would need to be this four, four-and-a-half, five-hour epic that, you know, he just didn't think was going to fly with the, with the studios and the public. But, yeah, I mean, you know, given his, um, his track record, it just seems kind of, in his... Um, uh, Affinity for the for the strange and the usual that he would he would deem it unfilmable. unfilmable. Um, well, do you think do you think that America that an American audience could do a four hour movie? I mean, with about what a fifteen minute intermission? Not this kind of movie. I really don't. I mean, Lord of the Rings is kind of the exception to the rule. I think, and even then, it didn't quite go four hours. I think if you try and market a quote four hour superhero flick, I think you're going to have a lot of trouble. No, I but, think you know people are. People are just going to be really hard pressed to want to sit down in a theater, even you know, intermission or no intermission, to see a you know what they deem is going to be a tape and tights movie, even though it really isn't, um, for four hours. Right, but now this that was made before the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the movies came out, and were proven as as what I think is, was a success. Given that context, 
could it could Terry Gimmel have done it as two movies, you know, released you know six months a year apart, like Lord of the Rings was done? I I think it would have worked. You know, would that would that um, it could, know, could again, that have changed his mind? Possibly, possibly. I just think at that time, you know, it it, it just wasn't something people thought of. You know, you know, right, right or wrong. You know, but oh, it's no, an interesting it, concept. I think I think it would have been. I, I think you're right. I think it would have been a much. Maybe his opinion would have been changed if it was proposed that way. You know, in in at that time um, in '89, um, superhero movies were very different. So, picturing. You know, a four-hour Batman movie the way it was done in the late 80s and early 90s is probably very difficult. Now, after we've seen Dark Knight and Iron Man and some of these other, you know, superhero movies that have evolved so far, you know, now, if he was asked the same question now, you know, his answer would probably be a lot different. Yeah. To some degree, hindsight's twenty twenty. Right. Right. So... After Gilliam decided to pass on it ultimately, it kind of floundered once again. And the, the producer, Lawrence Gordon, who kind of was the rights holder, the producer of the, of the property, um, collaborated with Universal and Paramount and uh, got David Hayter to rewrite the script again in 2004, and they tapped Darren Aronofsky to direct it. Um, and again, it kind of, kind of sat by for a while. And then Aronofsky ultimately, you know, due to budget disputes and everything else, decided to go off and, and focus on making The Fountain, which was kind of like his big, you know, career piece that he wanted to do. And um, I think history will judge whether whether that was a smart idea or not, but um, so be it. Uh, so after after Aronofsky kind of bowed out of it, Paul Greengrass was the next one that was that was lined up to direct. And, and then ultimately in 2005, it was canceled due to budget issues. The studio just kept trying to shrink down the budget and it just wasn't working. And eventually they just, you know, it just kind of fizzled out. So the rights went back to, uh, Warner Brothers with Paramount getting the international rights to it based on their previous agreement. Um, and after Zack Snyder's success with 300 and what a big deal that was for Warner's, um, and the positive response they got, they got Al, uh, Zack Snyder to direct and they hired Alex I guess that's how you pronounce it, it's T-S-E, um, to, to draft the script um, based on elements of Hader's script. Um, but they had, they put one thing back into it that Hader removed out. When Hader wrote the script, he put everything in the current time frame. And when when Alex Say got the script back, they decided to, to set it in the time period it was intended, which was the mid-80s. So that was like the biggest um, you know change to Hader's script. So then we get into, so Snyder gets the rights, and, you know, as we all know, we've seen the trailer, we've seen all the stuff on the Internet, we've, you know, seen all the promo pics and everything else. Filming started, you know, and, and at this point, I think the movie's pretty much done and in the can, other than some probably final editing and maybe some effect shots and whatnot. So along comes Fox after all this time, and they decide they want to sue Warner Brothers um, for, you know, to, to basically to get an injunction against the, the movie being released. And uh, I, I went to Newsarama, and they had a great blog entry that, that detailed, and we'll put it up in the show notes afterwards, that, that lists the links to the actual, um, you know, pleadings from, you know, Fox, the Warner Brothers response, and then ultimately the judge's ruling on, on the case. Um, and it's, it's, it's an interesting read. So what I'm going to do now is kind of break that down into, you know, layman's terms. I'm, I'm definitely not a lawyer. I do not play a lawyer on television. 
so if I say anything that, that kind of goes against legal uh, convention, you know, don't be too harsh. Um, so Fox's suit, um, they've, they've labeled five things in the suit that they're going against uh, Warner Brothers for. Number one is copyright infringement. Number two is interference with contract. Number three is breach of contract. Fourthly, they want a full accounting of all the profits um, related to the movie. So, if, if, you know, if, depending on how things go, in the end, they'll be able to, to fully, you know, figure out what their partici- participation level is and, you know, what their, their due, if, potentially if they win any lawsuits. And then declaratory relief, which is basically they, they want money out of the whole thing um, in the end. So in Fox's suits, they kind of relay what, you know, historically has happened from a contractual standpoint and from a, from a you know, copyright or, or, or a, a rights perspective. And according to the Fox suit, they acquired the rights between 1986 and 1990 to the graphic novel by Alan Moore with screenplays by Charles McKeon and Sam Hamm. And like we mentioned you know, previously, Sam Hamm was the one that wrote the screenplay for Batman, Batman Returns, and he also ended up writing the, the and producer on the Mantis TV show that came kind of in the early 80s there, if anybody remembers that. Charles McKeon was most notable for uh, being a writer on the movie Brazil and the adventures of Baron Munchausen. Um, he was a writer as well as an actor, so that, that we kind of get back to the whole Terry Gilliam connection with Charles McKeon. Um, so that, that's kind of where things were in 90. In 90, 1991, Fox filed what they call a quit claim um, to Largo, a company called Largo International. And basically what a quit claim is is... Fox basically just disclaimed all their rights and interest in the property and signed it over to this company called Largo International. Um, there were some caveats on the quick claim. Um, Largo agreed to pay Fox for the rights, and Fox was granted distribution to Watchmen and all of its sequels and 2.5% net profit. That, that went along. And then in 1993... Um, a man named Lawrence Gordon was a primary was one of the primary interest uh, interest holders in Largo International, um, and he split off and formed his own company called Golar Incorporated, which was actually a part of Largo. I know this is getting a little con- little confusing here. Um, and in 1993, uh, Golar decided to withdraw from Largo, and Largo was granted the Watchmen rights. So in 1994, Lawrence Gordon and Fox agreed. Uh, to a turnaround agreement concerning the Watchmen. So basically, in '94, Gordon and, and Golar decided to, uh, you know, make their cut their own deal with Fox regarding the Watchmen properties. And the turnaround agreement uh, specified the following three items: one, Fox would be reimbursed all costs and interest. You know, basically they they would they would be bought out. Um, Golar would basically buy Fox out. The buyout would happen if Gordon reached an agreement with another studio. So basically. If Gordon doesn't do anything with the, with the movie, then everything just kind of stays where it is. And the only the only time that Fox would receive any payment is if Gordon decided to actually take it to a studio that wanted to do anything with it, or if Fox changed their mind and actually wanted to make it. Um, the third thing was any changes, and this is the key element, and this is the you know what's really brought about the lawsuit is any changes to the project elements would give Fox first right of refusal. Also, every change would have to go through the same process. Um, also, if Fox quit claim rights by, uh, via them, they would, uh, you know, gain the 2.5 net uh, percent net profit on the film. 
Um, and so the heart of the the heart of the claim is is in this third option where you know anytime there's any change to either you know elements of the film, writer, director, script, actors, etc. Gordon was supposed to go back to Fox and get approval um, and let him know what those changes were. So then at the at the, at the end of the suit, uh, suit here it says that Fox alleges that Warner Brothers knew of the quick claim agreement with Gordon and Fox when Warner Brothers entered its agreement with Gordon and didn't follow through and has not paid for the buyout. Warner Brothers, you know, denies that and they say they didn't realize, you know, the details of the agreement and, and felt that, you know, th- that the rights were free and clear when the, when Warner Brothers got them back from Gordon. Fox basically found out about Watchmen production in 2007 and in August of 2007 sent a cease and desist letter to Warner Brothers injuncting them against the, the film. Um, Fox is alleging at minimum they have distribution rights to the film and at most full rights based uh, to the property based on changed elements that they weren't advised of. The suit alleges that they have the right to refuse, you know, based on based on the changes. So what they're saying now is they have the right to refuse the changes that have been done. Well, given the movie's already been filmed and is basically in the can, it just seems kind of silly at this point that they would refuse the changes that have been proposed. And, you know, with The Dark Knight being such a big deal and a, you know, big money pot, I think superheroes are kind of, movies are kind of on the rise. And, you know, Fox is just kind of, hedging, in my opinion, it seems that Fox is kind of hedging their bet here and just kind of waiting to see what happened. Um, oh, they totally waited for this thing to be nearly done and over with until they sprung this on Warner Brothers. I mean, you know, and you can't tell me that Warner Brothers probably didn't see this coming down the pike either. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A giant absolutely. game of chicken right now. Yeah. Exactly. This came down um, within a month of the trailer coming out, and the, and not only the trailer, but the the response to the trailer was huge. You know, do you think that that also contributed to the time when they realized, wait a minute, they they've got something on their hands. We need to act on it now. Oh yeah, and every time you know the Dark Knight passes another hundred million dollar milestone, it's just Fox is just seeing more and more dollars. So, it's amazing that they have so successfully promoted this and caused so much hype around Watchmen that Fox is making this huge bid for it now. And now Warner Brothers might end up making money for Fox if the lawsuit goes their way, you know? Yeah. And so basically Fox, Warner's, after the Fox threw their lawsuit out, in May of 2008, Warner Brothers created a motion in court that, to dismiss the Fox suit. Um, the heart of Warner Brothers' argument against the, the suit is that um, basically Fox let the project go. You know, their, their whole the basis of their argument boils down to the fact that they feel like Fox just let this thing go. They haven't had anything to do with it. And, you know, two other studios have had it. It was greenlit by a third studio and just, you know, kind of fell, you know, laid fallow. And not, not, a, not a peep was, was set. And now after Warner Brothers has this huge investment, you know, Fox is basically crying foul. Um, on it. Also, Warner Brothers alleges there's no copyright infringement since the quit claim and the rights they retain don't establish a copyright. And I think that this is where we kind of get into copyright law, which I know, you know, next to nothing about. But basically what they're saying is if you have the rights or partial rights to something that doesn't, that doesn't equate to a copyright. So they can't sue for violation of copyright if they quote don't have the copyright. Um, Warner Brothers also alleges that... So um, element- let me ask, can I ask you a question, Russ, real quick? Sure. Um, sure. DC has the uh, the copyright to the printed work, right? DC, I, Time I, Warner, Warner Brothers, they have the, the to the printed, actual printed book of Watchmen. In distribution. So, right. So the so the film so the film rights to the work they are are sold separately to Fox. Is that what happened here? Yes. Yes. Okay. Thanks. I just wanted to be clear on that. I'm sorry. 
yeah, and you know, given that it was back in '86 when the you know, or between '86 and '90 when the film rights were sold, I mean, if you think about it, back then, who was you know making money or even making superhero films back then? I mean, anything you know, the the closest thing prior to Batman in '89 that was made was all that you know, god awful stuff in the late '70s um, and, and mid '70s that Marvel was doing, and you know, with the exception of the Superman movies. But you know, basically, that that whole genre had pretty much died at that time. So you know, the fact that Warner Brothers felt that they could, you know, dump the rights to that thing to, to Fox for some, you know, cash or whatever they got for it was, you know, at the time probably a smart move. You know, whereas now we would, you know, be scratching our heads wondering what they were doing. So either that or just short-sighted. Yeah, exactly. So the last I really piece, don't think you know, the American uh, audience would have been ready for a movie as dark as Watchmen portraying superheroes uh, back in the 80s in any way. I agree. Yeah, it, it, yeah, and that and the whole, you know, as, as we see, it's, it's superheroes, but it's not superheroes. You know, when, when, you know, when it all comes down to it and, you know, there's only one person that has superpowers, I think people would have just been, you know, baffled by the fact that, you know, this is a, quote, superhero movie that, where people aren't really superhuman. So it, it, it would have been taken very strangely. And then after the success of The Dark Knight, it's obvious that people are looking for a darker, more realistic superhero story. Um, so now Watchmen becomes something that's viable and something that can capture the imagination of the public rather than something that would, back in 89 or whatever, probably just would have sailed over everyone's head. Well, that and the fact that, you know, you take 300 into account and, you know, Zack Snyder, you know, the, how well-received that movie was and how spot-on an adaptation it was and, you know, in a collaboration. And Sin City. That happened. Yep. Exactly, Sin City, too. You know, it's just between Frank Miller and, you know, Zack Snyder, they're, you know, kind of like the Golden Boys right now. And, and uh, you know, so this makes a lot of sense. Lastly, um, as far as the suit goes, Warner Brothers is alleging on the whole change elements provision that it's merely an option to produce or develop the film. That, that basically an, unex- an unexercised option is not sufficient to super copyright infringement um, based on the Copyright Act itself. And they're saying that interference doesn't apply or breach a contract because they thought that, you know, Lawrence Gordon had full rights to Watchmen and had no prior knowledge of any of the specific contracts. So, you know, Warner's is saying, hey, you know, we, we took this on in good faith that he had all the rights, you know, squared away and straightened out, and, you know, we, we went forward. The other thing is that Warner Brothers is saying that the 1994 agreement that Lawrence Gordon created with Fox, no, create, you know, makes the, the, the 91 um, quit claim that, that Fox filed basically in the, in the provisions behind it null and void that basically the 94 agreement with Gordon you know just redoes the whole whole thing entirely which you know is the is basis for some of the loopholes that Warner's is, is claiming and uh, you know basically when it all shook out the judge's order in the end was that um, Warner Brothers basically needs to make a better argument um, against their copyright infringement um, you know, lawsuit that, that Fox has put forward, that basically Fox has a pretty valid claim to copyright infringement, and if Warner's is going to go based on the argument that they presented in their counter, or in their dismissal, claim that it's it's not strong enough and it's not going to hold up. Um, and also that their Fox's right of contractual interference is upheld, you know, based on the judge's opinion. So, as it stands right now, you know, the judge doesn't see, you know, sees a pretty strong argument, you know, from Fox, number one, and number two, you know, definitely sees enough to move forward with trial that that's going to take place in January. So, um, you know, at this point, unless there's some sort of backdoor deals or something else going on, it looks pretty solid that, you know, this thing is going to go to trial in January and hopefully get resolved in, in time for, for March. Has there been an official announcement of the movie being delayed at all? 
No, no. A lot of speculation, I think, but I don't think there's been anything official. The only thing I think I said was that uh, something about a trial date or hearing or some kind of action happening in maybe April, which would be obviously afterwards. So if there's any kind of injunction to stop the release of the film pending any, any action, I could see that happening. But, again, nothing official yet that I know of. Yeah, like I said, they've set a trial date for January, so it, you know, oh, okay. they're, they're surprisingly able able to move this thing through through the court system pretty quick. Um, and I think the, the 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 release date has a lot to do with that. I think you know if, if this release date had been you know a year from you know now or you know a year and a half from now, I think I don't think we'd see this thing going to trial that quick. Um, but ultimately, in the end, I think this is going to you know because the movie's in the can, because it's being so well received, because there's so much buzz. Because of the Dark Knight, I really think that if, if this goes south for Warners, they're just going to have to pony up a whole lot of cash to make it happen. I was going to ask you, do we think that they're going to settle this, you know, give Fox some money just so they can start reclaiming the investment they've got, get it out there to the public? But the only way to do that is to settle this in one way or the other. I think yeah. so. I mean, I, I just I can't see, you know, Warner basically sitting this thing on the shelf or or worse, is have, you know, hype die down for it and delay the release six months or a year. Mm-hmm. I think that would be the absolute worst thing that possibly happened to it. Right. And, and this is a giant production, so obviously the wheels are in motion and have been in motion for a long time in terms of promoting and, and you know, setting up for this event. It, it would probably be more damaging to them to have to change the date than to just pay a sum and, and get it out there when it was supposed to be. I was just going to say, if um, if Kevin Smith's blog is to be believed, that there's already a rough cut of the movie made, um, and a watchable cut at that. He said it ran about three hours. I would. I was just on the uh, Watchmen website while you guys were talking, and there's no release date on the website, but the release date on the trailer is still the same that it was at Dark Knight. Yeah, they haven't yeah, changed that. In the absence anything else, yeah, they'll just stick with it, um, and it may be that they just. You know, they're leaving the release date they have put out there out there, but they're not, you know, kind of blowing the horn about, you know, that release date. But, you know, even with the, even with the trial date in January, that's still, you know, you know, two months away from, you know, their, their pending release date by the time the trial hits. They're, they're, you know, I think they're just going to stick with it. Well, you've seen many, you know, Say, well, you know, they're not stopping work on this. I mean, they've still got the guys doing the editing, doing the work on this. They're still probably producing this as if it's still March 9th. Because uh, they want, they got to be ready for it if it goes their way or if they settle. So they're still probably. So what do you guys think? Date. Are we are we going to get it? What do you guys think? Uh, bottom line, do you think we're going to get a Watchmen movie in March two thousand nine, or do you think it's going to be delayed? I think we get it. I think we get it. I'm going to say we get it in two thousand nine. We get it by summer. If we there's a strong chance of missing March, but I don't think it'll go past the summer movie season. Yeah, I agree. I, I give it probably eighty to ninety percent chance we'll see it in March, but still, you know, based on you know what I like I said with the research I did on the lawsuit, I think there's maybe a ten twenty percent chance that it's going to get pushed. But I don't see it getting pushed by very much um, at all. I think it'll definitely see a summer release because that's that's where the big bucks are. And like I said, if, if Fox has to pony or I'm sorry, if, if Warner Brothers has to pony up some cash for Fox to make it happen, um, and I think I that's think exactly that the play Fox was was betting on when they timed this. You know, they know Warner Bros. can't afford to hold this. They need to get it out there. 
Absolutely. I mean, all the other ancillary merchandise is already being timed for a March release, too. The action figures, the uh, the relaunching of the book and floppies, the, uh, the every, all the other marketing, um, you know, ancillary um, items that go along with the movie's release are timed for March. So they're going to be missing out on that money, too, if the movie gets delayed. So which fast food chain is going to get the tie-in? Where am I going to get my Happy Meal for Watchmen? The Rorschach Unhappy Meal. <laughs> Oh, I just had a brilliant idea. Hooters. The owl ship. Oh, <laughs> oh God. Oh. Hooters on the phone. Oh, my God. I missed right my now. calling. Marketing is my calling. <laughs> we are experiencing operating difficulties. Please stand by. And we're back due to some uh, technical difficulties and the FCC having a quota on fart jokes. Uh, we had to get rid of Johnny M for a little bit. Uh, but we're back now with our analysis of the, uh, the issue of uh, Watchmen number three. Ross, you want to take it from here? Yeah. So starting with uh, page one, you know, again, we, we, uh, we get introduced finally to the much-talked-about Black Freighter, um, which is the comic within a comic. Um, you know, we've kind of alluded to this up to this point. We've seen in the first couple of issues where the, the kids kind of been sitting by the newsstand reading a book, and, and you know, we briefly talk about it. But now we actually finally see it in action. And uh, starting with the first panel, we can tell when we're reading the Black Freighter stuff um, because the the word balloons are kind of in that scroll style where we see they're they're kind of folding up the edges, and we get that um, old style coloring effect on not only the word balloons but on the issue itself. It kind of looks like that old, you know weekly comic strip uh, newspaper feel to it. I like how the cover um, with the smoke in front of the in front of the sign, how it reads all hell because the fallout oh, is nice. cut off and it the does. smoke is covering the out and then you have shelter with the S's cut off so you only get the hell. Holy crap, you just blew my mind, Johnny. <laughs> I never noticed that before. Seriously. Can we say all hell on a uh, family podcast? That's PG-13. Yeah. One thing I point I, I saw when I when read this was the, the, the story of the Black Freighter uh, parallels what's going on in The Watchmen so closely. For the first couple pages of this, I really thought I was reading descriptions of what was going on in The Watchmen. And it wasn't until I got towards the middle of the second page that I realized, oh wait, this is the comic I'm reading. You know? Yeah, it was pretty brilliant how they how they kind of wove, wove that in, you know, because you're exactly right. I mean, when you look at that first word balloon, it says, "I saw that hellbound ship's black sails against the yellow indie sky," and you look at the panel and it's you know the the black you know symbol of the you know radiation symbol with the yellow in the background. Something somebody brought up on the forums, I believe, in, in a world where superheroes are, are real in this Watchmen world, uh, that the pi- that the comic books are written about pirates, and thing you know instead of superhero comics like we have in our world. That's a line I think we're going to read later on in the in the book. Um, that that's that's pretty much the reality. You know, com- super superhero comics don't really matter when you have a, a Doctor Manhattan for real. And remember that the name of the comic store is called Treasure Island in Watchmen. Yeah, and we'll see even later on when we see that uh, Treasure Island shop that when you look closely at the window, the display window, and everything in there, everything has a pirate theme. All the books they have on display and the posters they have on display that you can see all are either uh, pirate ships or, you know, the, the big ships with the sails and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's definitely permeated throughout the, 
the, the comic world in the in the book, so to speak. As we look to the to the bottom panel, we see the the kid reading the the comic, and you know, on the back panel, we see the 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 ad that says the the bite method, which kind of harkens back to the old ads in the in the comics from when the old, you know when we're Charles, the, the old Charles time. Atlas method, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I also see dynamic we, tension. We also see in the hanging up in the newsstand the Nova Express, the tabloid of the of the uh, this world that's going to come into play later on this issue. Yeah, and the uh, the headline there is "How sick is Dick after third presidential hard op?" So again, we get this clue that you know things that are kind of occurring in the Watchmen world are different from the way they occurred in you know our world or the the real world where you know Nixon is still uh, president. Well, you know, once he's putting down Cheney numbers for heart surgery, then we should be concerned. <laughs> but also, um, we get a picture on the third panel of a missing writer, and that is Max Shea, who, as we come to find out later on in Watchmen, is actually the author of Black Freighter. And while Bernard, the news vendor, is sitting there right underneath it, and his uh, associate, uh, Bernie, the kid, is sitting right underneath it, too, reading the Black uh, excuse me, reading tales of the Black Freighter. Um, that's a, there's lots of pairs in Watchmen, and uh, Bernard and Bernie kind of start their own journey. Um, in this particular issue, there's Dan and Lori, there's uh, Doctor Manhattan and Lori, there's Rorschach and Dan, and uh, these two are kind of off on the merry way to begin their own surrealist adventure. Bernie um, reading the tales of the Black Freighter, and then Bernard and dealing with Rorschach in a few panels. Well, don't forget, too, in the next couple of pages, there's Dr. Manhattan and Dr. Manhattan as well. <laughs> yes, there is. Good point. Yep. <laughs> yeah, good point. Another thing we see in this first page, and it's the thing that we see all through the book, but I just wanted to bring it up again, is the uh, the caption and the uh, the dialogue uh, relating dr- directly to each other, especially in, like, the third panel of the first page where, you know, the hideous crew call out more blood, more blood, and... Bernie or Bernard is saying uh, we ought to nuke them till we glow, till they glow. You know, it's like the parallel statements. Well, it really comes to play, comes obvious as you get to the second page, the middle panels, as the news vendor is describing a news vendor. You know, you know he sees everything connected. A news vendor understands that uh, the weight of the world's on him, but does he quit? Nah, he's like Atlas. He can take it. He's a survivor. He's describing a news vendor. It also, by the images, is apparent he's describing. The, our character in the Black Freighter comic, but it's also a very good description of Dr. Manhattan himself. It's funny because Bernard really uh, thinks highly of his job, and America has always been associated with uh, you are what you do in some sort of ways, but I think Bernard really romanticizes a little bit about his job, which is really, in some ways, what Black Freighter, the Black Freighter is. It's kind of a romance, at least elements of it. And then we see at the bottom of... Uh... You know, moving on to page two, we see on page two um, the little what they they almost look like fire hydrants, and they kind of have that that symbol on it. it. It to me, I thought it was kind of partially an homage to the Flash because it's it's the round circle with that lightning bolt symbol on it. And then we see at the bottom left hand corner of page two, it has what looks like a power outlet. And so I took this as being kind of recharge stations since the cars in in this world are all electric. That you know, obviously, instead of gas stations, they would need places to to plug in and recharge. And just by you know looking at the way they're positioned and the way they show them, these to me are obviously you know basically car recharge stations. And of course, at the bottom right hand 
panel of page two, we see uh, the the reappearance of Rorschach in his uh, uh, the the world is coming to an end, carrying the sign guy. Now I noted very clearly that when he's not in as Rorschach, when he's not in character, he's he's apparently speaking rather normally. He's not in that gruff, clipped, gravelly voice that we've been associated with him for the last two issues. Because this is, I think, the first time we've seen him speak as the, you know, prof- prophesizer of doom. Yes. Well, during the Crime Busters meeting in the last issue that we did, uh, he was in the Rorschach costume, but he didn't have that gravelly voice. Let me back up. This I is the f- find- I was going to say, this is the first time since whatever happened to him because this is still this is like in the quote unquote present day I believe this is this is when this is after the You're comedian right. was killed so even though when he's in character he's he's in that clipped voice you know whatever f- happened to him affected him so much but he's out of he's not in that character when he's not Rorschach he's he's himself what's well, the next on point and then I I love that exchange at the top of page three where uh, he he says how's the end of the world coming. And, and Rorschach says, it'll happen today. I've seen signs. National Examiner reported a two-headed cat born in Queens. Today for certain. And then he says, you'll keep my paper for me tomorrow. And he's like, uh, sure, sure, no no sweat. So it's just, you know, the whole, you know, again, this whole Rorschach nonsensical, you know, but to him it's like he, so Rorschach himself, it seems like he makes perfect sense, but yet he just says the, the, the strangest, you know, things from, from the person on the street. Another detail to notice is that in the background is the Institute for Extraspatial Studies, and that will definitely come into play in later chapters. What, um, while we're on it, Jim, um, what exactly do they mean by extraspatial? You're going to have to remind me here because I looked it up and I, I can't seem to find anything. Maybe uh, beyond, I guess, extra and beyond space or maybe on another dimension. That's what I'm, how I'm interpreting it at this point. I think that's the cover. Well, I don't want to get too spoilery, but it definitely comes into play later. I was just going to say, one of the things I didn't notice uh, until until reading it this last time is that as um, Bernard is putting the sign up for the missing author, um, as they're talking, Rorschach just basically takes the sign away from him and and walks away with it. You know, if you look at page three on that top middle panel, you see he's got his his hand on the the poster. And then in that third panel, as as Bernard kind of looks confused based on, you know, Kind of Rorschach's rambling. No, no, no. Um, that's that's the paper he bought. Oh, is that the back cover of the paper? That is the paper he bought. If you look at the text, it's the New Frontiersman, and that's that's the copy he he per- he was purchasing. And speaking of the New Frontiersman, and you talk about you know conspiracy related uh, publications. Um, just a quick anecdote. I will not use my friend's name uh, <laughs> against them, but uh, we I went over to a friend's house. And this was after Christmas, and we were cleaning out uh, his grandmother's attic. And uh, <laughs> we ran across a number of far-right publications. And I, I want to be clear to our listeners, like especially Max, because, well, you know, we know Max is a Republican. <laughs> but um, some far-right uh, publications, for example, included uh, the Barnes Review. And Moore certainly got his cues from publications like the Barnes Review, even though it began publishing in 1994. Um these far-right publications, the Barnes Review, for example, uh, which the New Frontiersman was modeled from, uh, is really along the lines of historical revisionism. In other words, uh, Holocaust denials and deniers um, more or less write these publications. And I'm on the Barnes Review webpage right now, and it says, 
Since our first issue in 1994, we have asked two criteria in our selection for articles for, t- for the Barnes Review. Is it true, and is it interesting? And I think this idea of conspiracy, history is all wrong, um, history is written by the winners, is kind of lost on there. Also, um, <laughs> we found a book called uh, Children of Satan, and it had Dick Cheney on the cover, so I guess they don't even have any friends. I actually gave it to Dan for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of worried that story was going to be about me for a minute. Uh, <laughs> we know like, your what? secret missives. Yeah. <laughs> As we move hey, on, listen, okay. We, we all know the moon landing was in a studio, all right. Plus, real, real quick, um, Moore also sets up. You have the New Frontiersman, which is the right, uh, the newspaper, of the far right. Then you have the Nova Express, which is the the, the newspaper, of the liberal view in the Watchmen world. As yeah, we, it really seems that no one's safe. Even though more, you kind of can tell who more favors in here. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's just showing the the the, uh, the weaknesses in both sides. To be honest, yeah, I can see that. We haven't seen. I haven't yeah. seen. I'm only still reading this. I'm still fairly early, but I haven't seen enough of either one. But this this issue certainly highlights the liberal view of the Nova Express. You know, reporting reporting the news for the story despite what the consequences may bring, and they appear to be pretty grim what they bring, as we'll find out later. As we continue on page three, we get down to these one of these many. You know, I want to see this on the film kind of scenes as we push in onto the, the comic book. That's a perfect transition to the scene on page four with uh, Dr. Manhattan and Laurie, you know, in the bedroom, caressing the, the, the face of the, uh, the figurehead. And then Dr. Manhattan caressing Laurie's face with three hands, apparently. Yeah. If we can back up for one second, I have a question for you guys and get your opinion. And looking at, at at the bottom of page three, when we get to the Black Freighter part, and the way that the, the the character in the story is talking, and and the the, I guess the the lady that he has up there, did you did you guys take that as the that's basically like the mat the, I don't know what you call it on the front of a ship. That's yeah, like, that's, like that 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 yep. was the not not the mast, but the it's the figurehead. Know, the that's exactly what it is. I had a sudden memory right, of right. clinging fast to someone. Through the tempest, the figurehead lay at my feet, blindfolded by seaweed, alone upon that dreadful shore. She smiled. That, that's what that was. Yeah, and, and that, that's how I took it. I just wanted to make sure I didn't, you know, because as we'll see later on, he gets pretty grim about the way he can, you know, constructs his little raft. So I just want to make sure it wasn't uh, wasn't a, a body. No, um, not this time. When he, when he mentioned it was wooden, you know, wooden breasts had nourished me in the heart of the storm, I took that as that was a part of his, his ship that he was able to salvage. Yep, that's precisely what it was. And I think it's interesting, too, that we know that Max Shade, the author of The Black Freighter, um, is somewhat acclaimed, and enough. the fact that he's missing is enough to get noticed. So I think we can actually look for that deeper meaning also um, in The Black Freighter as a standalone, independent of Watchmen. And what I would say is, I, it's kind of hard to discount this, but I, I was reminded of the figure of justice that's in, you know, courtrooms and especially in Washington, D.C., that justice is blind, and it seems that uh, this masthead, this this uh, figure at, that at the front of the ship is also kind of uh, posed in the same, similar manner, and also her eyes are covered up. Yeah, Plus, point. the figurehead is the, um, the sailor survivor's uh, one, like, um, anchor to hold him to his sanity, after seeing all this death and destruction, and much the same way, Lori is Dr. Manhattan's last anchor to his human life. And then, looking on page four, you know that quote where, where from the Black Raider that says, "I could not love her as she loved me." I mean, that's definitely, um, you know, to me that I can I see doc, that 
that, those words coming out of Dr. Manhattan, that, you know, he basically feels like he, he has, he had, he feels like he has to split himself into multiple people in order to please her because he doesn't, he basically doesn't know how to please her. So he's, he's kind of going out of his way to, to, to do what he thinks she wants because he knows that he can't feel for her what, you know, what she feels for him. And he's losing his, uh, it's like he's losing his humanity just like the pirate in the, in the comic. That's yeah, exactly. Comic. Oh, he definitely has. And, and, and it's, you know, the, the interesting thing is he, he doesn't give it a second thought. You know, I mean, you know, here we see on page four he split into two people, and then, you know, we find out that really he was split into a third person that was, you know, still going on with his studies and his work, you know, on page five. And it, you know, he just, it, it, it doesn't even phase him. You know, he's just like, well, you know, what, what would you expect me to do kind of thing? Well, I mean, right here, Laurie, my, my work's an important stage. It seemed unnecessary, too. I mean, he, it's like, I have this ability. I can work and do this. I don't need to make a decision, make a choice like that. You know, perfectly logical to him. And almost like he just doesn't understand, like, why she's upset. You know, it's like, well, I don't, you know, like, he, he doesn't, you know, again, it's that losing humanity. He doesn't understand, you know, the whole, you know, why, you know, why someone would, would feel that way. I think this, too, is sort of a, um, especially the last three panels on this page are sort of illustrative of the whole theme of the book. Um, you've got sort of Dr. Manhattan splitting himself into the two ideals that are really prevalent here, one that's so distracted that it can't really see what's going on around him, and then another one that's trying so hard to stop what it knows is coming. But can he? He already determined that, you know, History is already the past to him. He can't affect the future. Like the future is already its past. Yeah, that brings up an interesting discussion, and you know we'll we'll definitely see more of that as 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 the issues go on. But you know, is it is it that he can't affect history, or that he knows that no matter what he does, or I can't affect the future, or does he know that no matter what he does, it's going to turn out the way it does anyway, or does he? He just, you know, he's so far removed from it, he just lets things play out, um, you know, the way the way that he feels they should. I mean, it just, and I don't think that question necessarily gets resolved in this book, but it, it just brings up an interesting, you know, topic of conversation is, is you know, you know, it's the whole, you know, time paradox and, and the whole nature of time is, you know, by knowing the future, you know, does that make it, you know, basically already come true and there's nothing you can do to avert it. We get some uh, little foreshadowing of what's to come as we transition to Janie's portion of the story here when she talks about how, I remember soon after he failed to prevent JFK's assassination, you know, is it, and we find out, or we'll find out more about that incident later on, I believe in the next issue, you know, did he fail to prevent it or did he just resign himself to that that's going to happen? Yeah, and the same thing when we saw, you know, last issue when the comedian, you know, shot that woman, you know, he kind of stood there fully had the power to stop it, but chose not to. And then seemed, you know, shocked or put off at the fact that the comedian actually shot that woman. Maybe that ties back to uh, what you were talking about before, about the way Dr. Manhattan perceives time. Uh, I know we are talking about Slaughterhouse-Five on one of the previous uh, episodes, but that's kind of how I see it. it. Almost like he sees all of time as one moment, rather than seeing it spread out the way we do. Uh, just part of his uh, losing his humanity as he ascends to godhood. Also, um, when you look at <clears throat> when uh, Silk Spectre is running out of the military installation, that it's called the Rockefeller Military Research Center, and I just think it's interesting that all of the uh, you know more or less barons of industry 
from the turn of the century forward, or somewhat pop up in here, the Kennedys, the Nixons, um, in this case the Rockefellers, and you know the definition of fascism is when corporations control um, the population, and I think it's interesting that you know Nelson Rockefeller might have had a hand in this, and who knows if the Carnegies did as well. That's a good point. I didn't, I didn't really pay attention closely to the to the name of the research center. Well, this came up in issue one, but I just don't think it made the cut uh, when we recorded the first episode. But um, this is the second appearance of uh, the name Rockefeller on here. One of the things, looking at page six, that's that's interesting, and we'll see this actually, it's page six, seven, actually just six and seven. The way that the story is told, it's like you have on the left-hand side of the page, and the, and the page layouts are the same on both of these pages, but you have you know basically the Janie Slater story being told Vertically, and then the you know the the Lori you know Lori Jupiter Doctor Manhattan you know thing going on um, vertically as well. So it's just like instead of the traditional left right you know go down left right go down left right go down, it's like one story is being told vertically, and then and then the separate story is told vertically. I mean, even though if you read it, I mean, it, it definitely reads left to right. Right. Just visually, everything everything goes vertical. Well, we're going to see that again in a few pages when there's going to be two very different confrontations happening between one with Doctor Manhattan and one with uh, one with Laurie. Right, and the uh, narration from the the, the storyline on the left panels bleeds over into the right. You know, if, if you want, we can stop here as she stops to get out of the cab. Gets out of the cab. Uh, once they're busted, they can't ever be fixed, and the locksmith is fixing the door at uh, Dan's house that Rorschach broke in the, uh, I think, the first issue. Then at the end, it's such a relief just to talk to somebody, and there's Dan to talk to Lori. But you're right, um, you're right, Ken. We see that again later. And then it's, it's also, you know, this exchange kind of sets up the whole role reversal for Manhattan here. You know, and, and originally it was he, him walking out on Jamie Slater for, some, for, for basically a younger woman being Lori, and now Lori's walking out on Manhattan. So it's almost like... You know, kind of the, the tables have, have been turned on him, you know, and, and he's kind of getting the, you know, the back end of, of, you know, the way he treated another woman. And then on page seven, when they get down to it, we find out, you know, one of the things that was commented early was the paper was, was late. It wasn't out yet. Um, and then here, you know, we find out why the, you know, the paper's running late. You know, what, you know, what, what's going on at Nova Express that's causing the paper to, to be delayed. We find there's a big story they're working on, but in a few pages we'll find out what that story is. And it's, like I said before, the consequences of them reporting that is something they probably never imagined. Oh, yeah. And then looking on, uh, again, on page 7 on that first panel, we see the, you know, Treasure Island, the, the comic store in the Washington world. And like like I was mentioning, you kind of look at the, at the display window and you see, you know, the biggest picture poster or advertisement on there is for, you know, what obviously is Mutiny on the Bounty. Right. And of course, there's a big, you know, sailing ship on there. And if you look at the other, you know, images, you can definitely tell they're... Um, Swashbuckler you know, pirate. kind of pirate, yeah. yeah. Exactly, exactly. Plus, above it is the billboard for Adrian Veet's Nostalgia. Yes. Nordoff and Hall's book, Mutiny on the Bounty, is just about that. And without getting into the plot details of that book, I think that the idea of Mutiny fits right into the theme of who watches the Watchmen. Because as we talked about on our first episode, um, <laughs> things are not as they seem with the with the uh, Minutemen or the Crime Busters, at least uh, when we hit the, the stride of the uh, story in the later issues. Yeah. 
the other thing, you know, that's very stark about this, and again, this is one of those things that, you know, we, we keep bringing up, is the coloring on these two pages especially and the stark contrast between the left, you know, most panels and then the, and then the, the right panels. And, you know, on the left we get a lot of, you know, you know, primary colors, um, you know, a lot of, of bright, you know, it, it's a you know, bright, well-lit room. And then on the panels on the right, it's all reds and oranges and browns and, and all that, again, to, to help separate, you know, the two stories. You know, it's not just, you know, by dialogue and by, you know, by what's drawn. You know, the color does so much to separate, you know, to keep the two things separate. I think something Russ mentioned in one of the earlier issues, too, in every one of those uh, right-hand panels, there's a circle kind of reminiscent of the uh, smiley face. There's the sun in the, fir- in the first three. There's the uh, perfume bottle. Then there's the lights outside of dance and then the light inside of dance in each uh, panel. And this is the first first time um, on page seven where we're back at Dan's house, you know, with the with the locksmith repairing the lock after Rorschach's visit, visit um, previously. So I thought that was, you know, kind of interesting that, you know, here he is getting the lock fixed, and it, it, it gets even, you know, as we move on, it gets even funnier moving on towards the end of the issue. Is there a significance to the name of the locksmith's company? Gordian Knot Lock Company? Yep. All right. Um, more or less, this relates back to Alexander the Great, and through um, the mythologies that were associated with um, way back when in ancient times, more or less, a knot was created that had an ox cart tied to it, and this symbolized uh, who was the king, in this case, Gordius. Um, as the years went on, around 330, Alexander, uh, excuse me, <laughs> I don't even, <laughs> who's Alexander? <laughs> um, Alexander, uh, I can't even talk, oh my god. Alexander. Take two. <laughs> Alexander the Great attempted to untie this knot, which was a, a signified kingship, and you know, or it could have been having religious uh, uh, meanings uh, uh, associated with uh, paganism. In any case, this Gordian knot by Gordius is more or less a metaphor for an unsolvable problem, something that is so insanely difficult it's almost futile in effort. Alexander does untie the knot, but he, he slices it in half with his sword, um, producing two ends to an endless problem. And this is also where we get an, uh, the phrase, an Alexandrian decision. In other words, jump right in, uh, swords and guns blazing, and cut the problem off where, where its root is. And uh, I think that the obvious allusions to uh, ancient times, and therefore Adrian, are pretty abundant here. Once again, I am enlightened by the UMAC. Hey, um, Adam, let me ask you this question. Does this? I know there's a group in uh, the Watchmen world that are like the the punk rockers or the skinheads called the Knotheads. Does this tie into the Gordian Knot thing as well? No. If you go to page one of this issue, um, right by Nova Express, there is a magazine cover that says Knot Top, and I'm taking that as an alternative magazine which will probably tie into what you just mentioned later. Yeah, we see that. see some of the members of that gang later on the issue. But, I'm, I mean, it's, I haven't, I, I'm, I'm reading this issue by issue as we go through this, so um, if we do see it, uh, you know, make sure we grab it out, Jim, so we can talk about it. But, but, but I, I had remembered that, and I would just associate that with um, 
what we saw on page one. And plus, Lori and Dan are about to get into it, too, here. So I'm probably thinking that that was telegraphed from page one, just like another drop, uh, another drop or another hint. So moving, moving on to page nine, if we look at the, the first panel, um, I'm sorry, the second panel on the, on the top of that page, the, the bottom word balloon that says, this world, the real world, to him it's like walking through mist and all the people are like shadows, just shadows in the fog. And her face is hidden by the steam from the, from the, the tea kettle. So it's like, you know, again, she, she is that, you know, shadow in the fog, you know, it, you know, basically she's referring to herself and it's just, you know, accentuated by the, you know, by the steam from the kettle obscuring her, her, you know, her, our view of her. And actually, when her mascara is running on page eight, that's just exactly like Rorschach's sign that he was holding right by the comedian's funeral when it was raining and, and all the ink was washing off. Yeah, I always, I mean, I don't know why it is, but always looking at that, you know, as many times as I've, I've read through it, the way her mascara runs like that when she's crying and talking to him always just strikes me. It just, I don't know, my, my attention just gets drawn, you know, towards that image, um, you know, more so than, than the rest of the page. I don't know, it's just so... I don't know, to me, dramatic. You know, it's not just, you know, normally in a comic or something, you would just see tears or, um, you know, something like that. But to see the way that, the, you know, the mascara is running on her face is very is very dramatic. That panel, too, though, in all fairness for us, that's such a pulp panel. I mean, that's so derivative of pulp comics that I think that's probably one of the one of the reasons why we're so drawn to it, because that's, that's, when I turned the page, that's the first thing I noticed. Yeah. Then the other thing we see again, and this is... Um, you know, this, this follows for the next couple of pages as well, um, is the alternating. You know, we get one panel of Lori and Dan, we get one panel of Manhattan, we get one panel of Lori and Dan, we get one panel of Manhattan. And this continues on for the next several pages where, you know, it's, it, you know, we've seen this before as well where, you know, they, they tell the story and you see, you know, what's going on someplace else and, the, you know, the alternating, you know, color schemes and the alternating, um, you know, the scenes that are that are going on, and then of course the coffee pot, or the, I'm sorry, the teapot. Um, you can barely see it if you look at the dead center panel, but the coffee, the, the teapot is made by Adrian B. or or his company, I should say. So, was there a significance to Rorschach taking all of uh, his sugar back in issue one? Did you catch that? Yeah, because he's only you know he he doesn't have much left, and it's it's because Rorschach. Well, they made a point. He made a point of showing Rorschach dumping the sugar out and taking some. We saw him eating it in Doctor Manhattan's lab, and now we see he's only got one sugar cube left, and this is the first time he's discovering it. I'm just wondering if that's going to play out later on. If there's a significance to that, or if an it empty does. Sh- it does, okay. It does. It becomes a clue later on. Well, I don't. Want, I don't want to get spoilery, but it does play out I just, later on. I just want to confirm that it is in fact something. Again, we get the uh, the narration in the next few pages that bleeds over into the uh, into the next. Um, panel is, you know, try not to get any tight corners as Dan and Lori go into a dark alley that's certainly yeah. dark enough for my purposes, etc. It's the same uh, that we saw before Janie Slater when Lori left uh, Dr. Manhattan. And then how many of how many of you on page 11, like the first time you read through this, thought that there was a coloring, you know, like not reading any of the words, but just visually catching your eye, thought that they made a coloring mistake? No, I can't say that. I, I took it what it's impartially intended for. Dr. Manhattan's inside and they're outside, and it's meant to be a darker time, darker area, you know, and the lighting was going to be different. So I just I just simply took it as that. 
Yeah, something to me, I don't know why, I mean, obviously when you actually read the, you know, read the, the text on there, it, it describes why he's, he's dark enough, but I don't know, for some reason, the first time I read through that, and even, even when I haven't read it for a while, that just catches my eye, I'm like, oh, they screwed up on the coloring, and then you read it and it's like, no, they didn't screw it up. I like on this panel too, there's a big reference to this island Earth, which is, um, kind of foreshadowing what's to come at the end. Um, this Island Earth is kind of known as like the cheesiest sci-fi effects movie ever made. Um, That's right. It's the movie that the Mystery Science Theater crew did for their feature film. Yes, uh, with Exeter, the best character ever. Uh, <laughs> Notice um, their foreheads. <laughs> I didn't know these aliens wore pants. Uh, <laughs> but... uh you know, like I said, it's, it's foreshadowing kind of the end. I think it has a lot to say about not, I guess, so how easily the wool is kind of pulled over society's eyes, which goes back to the, you know, the whole um, sort of leftist and right wing magazines that are put throughout of it, throughout the comic book. But I just kind of, I think that that to me sort of stands out as a bigger reference to me as sort of a kind of like an underlying foreshadowing. Well, if there's anything I've noticed from reading Watchmen is that none of that stuff is accidental. So I'm sure that's uh, the reference they were going for. Yeah. And looking, you know, looking back on, if we back up just a little bit on page 10, you know, again, we see where, you know, basically this is mainly Lori, you know, narrating or Lori talking, you know, and somewhat Dan throughout, you know, the, this page in particular. But where, you know, like on the on the upper middle panel on page 10, where she, you know, you can hear her saying, sometimes I look at myself and think, how did everything get so tangled up? And the image that's shown is Manhattan, you know, tying his tie in a knot, you know, obviously things getting, getting tangled. Um, and, and then, you know, sometimes the cabs just disappear and getting from A to B takes forever. And as she's saying that, you know, boom, he blinks out to teleport, you know, from point A to point B, you know, where he just, and then completely out of, you know, and again, the, the middle panel on the bottom page is completely out of the blue and, who shows up out of the thin air but a, a blue man. So it's just, you know, I love the way that, you know, we have another character narrating what you're seeing in the panel, and it and it just relates to, you know, what you're seeing visually relates to what somebody else someplace, you know, in a, in a different, you know, in a different area completely is, is saying. The, the two just totally match up. Yeah, it's a visual irony trick that they've been using all through the miniseries. Um, and again, you see it through all through the next sequence with Dan and with Doctor Manhattan. Yep. Then again, at the bottom of page eleven, we see the the Who watches the Watchmen that we never see the you know the full you know it fully spelled out. We just see pieces and portions and you know it being obscured. These whole next five pages are going to be they referred to earlier this this two very different confrontations, but each very dramatic, I'd say. You know, with between. Nova Express reporter um, Doug Roth basically attacking verbally and accusing Dr. Manhattan and him expressing what shocked me, but shocked to the whole accusations, which threw me off. If this is someone who lives in time and sees everything, how could he possibly be caught by surprise by by anything? And that's whole par- paralleled by this encounter that what I imagine is going to really bring back Laurie into the, the superhero fold. I, I'm, I'm assuming it's going to come that yeah, and then again, like, you know, like, like Jim was mentioning earlier, we get this whole visual irony where, you know, what's being said this time from the opposite, instead of it being, you know, Lori speaking, it's, a, it's, it's, it's what's going on in the, in the studio broadcast that's being spoken relating to what's going on in real life, you know, for Dan and, and Lori. 
and that you know the whole encounter they have in in the in the alley you know on page 13 on, on the, the middle middle of the page says I believe it was quite sudden and quite painful and you see you know the two of them just you know just tearing into these you know thugs that are um, you know that are going after them. Let me ask a question to you guys. Um, Doug Roth, the, the the guy who was attacking Doctor Manhattan, uh, he kind of he's wearing purple and yellow, which are kind of uh, uh, Ozymandias' colors. Do you think they're related in some way? I think or it's is meant it just to a coloring choice. I think it's probably meant to imply a connection, and because as you say, nothing's accidental. Yeah, I was thinking because. Oh, go ahead, Russ. No, I was just gonna say I never, I never. You know, put those two together. Actually, I never really, as much as I paid attention to the coloring in this, I never, I never really, you know, put those two together on, on the coloring on his outfit. So it really stands out to me. I mean, the rest of the page is kind of in a green, and and then the other panels are in yellow and orange. But he's the only purple and yellow thing on this two-page spread. Yeah, and like, like you're saying, everybody else in that panel in particular is all washed out. You know, even mm-hmm. the people sitting directly next to him and behind him. Yet he's the one that you know that is colored. Back in issue two, we had uh, a scene where Rorschach with with Moloch, and Moloch was talking about his cancer, and now we're finding out, supposedly, allegedly, that cancer was caused by Dr. Manhattan. We see that in the bottom of page 13. How about Edward, Edgar W. Jacoby, also known as Moloch? You encountered him several times during the, battles in, during the 60s in battle. The uh, accusation is to be that he caused his cancer, along with his friend, Wally, and now Janie. And then... You know, we kind of see this continue on again with the alternating panel structure, you know, really through, you know, through page 16. So, from you know, really from page 11 to page 16, which is a pretty good spread, we get this this alternating panel structure that, you know, alternates either between, you know, what Dr. Manhattan is doing and what and what um, Lori and, and Dan are doing. I also noticed on page 15, like the last, instead of bleeding the narration over to the second panel, like the last balloon of the one panel relates. Like, for instance, let's come on on uh, page 15. Come on, let's get out. The mob's getting aroused. And we see Dan and Lori kind of in, aroused. Almost like, yeah, exactly. It turned them on to be able to be uh, superheroes again and to do their thing. Then the next is, uh, he's not here to answer questions on intimate moments. And then there's uh, Dan and Lori looking at each other Maybe with I Dan. Contact, yeah. On his uh, hand on his shoulder, on her shoulder, and then gentlemen, I think it's safe as not to pursue this line of thinking, and they've turned away from each other. Right. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, I, I, I'll try and keep this uh, family friendly, I guess, since we're, we're trying to be family friendly. But there's definitely a uh, a feeling on page, you know, when you get to page 15 between Dan and Lori, that there's a um, post relation uh, thing going on there. Plus, this is the first time the two characters seem to really connect um, yeah. on, in any way. Well, I think we talked earlier um, about how everybody's saying things opposite what they feel, and they were specifically talking about how ridiculous it was for even the B superheroes. But now we're seeing, no, this is what we live for. This is what we do. And they're starting to realize that again. That, that's, again, how I, how I looked at that. But the arousal was very, very clear. The other thing I found interesting on, on especially page 15 and it even starts at the bottom of page 14, and, and then, of course, it carries over into 16, is how uncomfortable Dr. Manhattan feels, you know, based on the accusations and everybody surrounding him. You know, when you think about it, I mean, he's been calm, cool, collected, in control, you know, worried about anything, you know, just kind of going about his own way. And now he's put in a situation where, 
you know, he's, you can tell he's, he's visibly and, and verbally uncomfortable. Well, this is, um, our, this is exactly what I was saying before, and you look back on yeah. page 14, it really starts to happen when he finds out about Janie. You know, Janie, but I wasn't told, are, are, are you suggesting? And he gets more and more agitated and angry and, and again, surprised. You know, how could he, how, what I didn't understand is how could he not have seen this? How could he not have known that this moment, this scene, this inter- interview was going to happen this way? Or yeah. he just can't see. He can see everyone else's lives in their whole timeline, but he can't see his own. There's some things that happen, and like I said, we won't spoil what's what's coming down the road. But there's some things that happen in later issues that the only thing I can think of is maybe at this time he doesn't have quite have that ability to, or hasn't honed his ability to um, exist in multiple time frames or timelines. You, we kind of see it, it somewhat slowly develop where he, things start getting a little confused even for him as to when things happen and where they happen. Um, so it, it, I almost see this as maybe like a progression, which is it's kind of strange because, it, it, you know, if he, if he can travel through time or, or, you know, see different time periods, it, it should apply to the past as well as the present and future. But um, like I said, we'll kind of see that progress a little bit. Yeah, I read, but, I know the next issue we're going to see a lot, a lot of that and, yeah. Especially in the context of the of the next issue, which is about as far as I've gotten, that just seems odd. Because as we turn to page sixteen, and he really loses it, you know. And as I said, "Leave me alone," and now he's alone. Well, what was interesting is, you know, it took him. I mean, "long" is a is a relative term, but you know, it took him a while to basically take everybody around him and and basically teleport them someplace else. You know, it, it's it, he let it build quite a bit before he got to that point. So it's almost like, again, I don't know if he was like the distraction and the and the caught off guard, you know, him being caught off guard affected his ability to, to you know, to do what he would normally do, which is either, you know, teleport or disappear or teleport somebody else. Because we saw even in the in the first issue when Rorschach, you know, came to visit and he kept irritating and irritating, he didn't let that go too long. Once, you know, once Lori pretty much said, you know, get him out of here, it was like, boom, that instant he was teleported out. And in this exchange, it seems like it was allowed to go on for a while before he either realized or or got to the point where he, you know, he needed to get rid of everybody and then himself. I think this, too, sort of plays on what Jim was talking about earlier, where he's losing his humanity. He, You can kind of see in that panel, the first panel you see of the long shot where there's no one in the studio but him, he looks kind of surprised at what he has just done. And I yeah. always took that to mean that he sort of realizes that his powers have become more godlike that really on just like a pure thought he doesn't even have to really want it to happen it just has to be a subconscious thought and it just he can just make anything happen at this point and it sort of catches him off guard yeah because if you look and see i mean his eyes are closed in that panel you know when it when it happens and then when they show him again like you said dan he's, he's like surprised you know it's like he Almost like he he did it subconsciously without even you know thinking about it, and then when he kind of woke up to it, he was kind of like taken off guard, like holy cow, I just I just did this. So then moving on on to page seventeen, we get the again another clue that the new frontiersman is kind of the uh, the the right you know wing paper where you know the we see the sign on the side of the building where it says um, in your hearts you know it's right, and then somebody put wing. You know, kind of spray painted that wing at the bottom of the side of those. Kind of. I think that, that's a that's a reference to, um, I think to LBJ and uh, Barry Goldwater. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
which is kind of a uh, another sort of allusion to just misinformation um, that are kind of prevalent in this book. Because I think it was Barry Goldwater's phrase was in, at the national convention was "In your heart, you know it's right," and LBJ changed it to "In your heart, you know he might," which is um, kind of referring to him being for nuclear wa- weapons. So. We also see the sign that we saw in the first issue, the obsolete models of specialty, as we see Dan Dryberg again in the background. It's uh, um, not a foreshadowing, but it's, uh, it's definitely uh, based on the same panel that we saw before. And moving on to, to page 18, one of the things that I noticed was, you know, it, it, the, the last page we get the, uh, it says all alone, uh, all alone in final analysis, and he, you know, from, uh, Bernie's going on about how you can't depend on anybody and, you know, you got to stand on, you know, you know, basically you should be relying on yourself. And all this is being said, you know, with the, with the focus on the sign that says shelter on it. I mean, the fallout is even covered, is even covered over. So you got somebody talking about, you know, being reliant on, you know, themselves and being able to stand alone and, and, you know, visually we're seeing, you know, the word shelter. This knows we have somebody who's, uh, was using one of those charging stations. You see him uh, either plugging in or unplugging. So he was unplugging himself out of the, the charging station there for the electric cars. The other thing, starting on this page, on, on 18 um, and 19, again, we see kind of the, the, the panel layout is, is the same. I mean, if you look at, at 18 and 19, you know, the way that the panels are laid out on the page are, are identical, which is, you know, mm-hmm. something that we see constantly, you know, this whole you know, either symmetry or, you know, the, the, these patterns. Actually, just looking at this, I just noticed um, page, or uh, on page 18, panel 2, is actually the opposite perspective of page 11, panel 2. That's interesting. Could this, yeah. could this moment be just a little bit in the past of what the first pages was? I'm wondering if that couple in the background is Dan and Lori leaving whatever they were. Well, I, I imagine... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying that was a good point. I, I, I hadn't, I hadn't paid attention that that was a male and a female walking. They said, uh, "Sorry, they're late. They wanted to wait till the TV show was on the air before they played the Grand Slam." It makes it sound so like it's very, being broadcast right now. Exactly, and they're walking while it's going down. So you might be right there, Ken. Yeah, I never noticed that before either. Yeah, that's a great observation. And I just noticed another Gunga Diner takeout box on the ground. Mm, delicious. <laughs> Then again, on um, at the bottom of eighteen, and then the top of nineteen, we get another one of these. You know what I, you know what I've been calling these cinematic transitions, where you, you know, you get one, you know, set piece that focuses on something, and then, you know, we we move on to, you know, to a different place where it uses that same set piece to, uh, to pick up from. Again, I just I can't wait to the movie to see all of these things, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully I'm not setting myself up to be, uh, um, you know, to, to be over. You know, overhyped by it, but I just I would love if all these these you know what we're seeing in the book is these cinematic transition transitions you know flow into the movie. I think that would just be just be so cool. This is where we find out that uh, just how powerful Doctor Manhattan can really be when he suggests that he's going to be going to Mars. Yeah, he actually can survive on Mars and get there. Well, it's, you know the thing is like uh, yeah for Arizona first I think and then Mars. It's like you know almost like well you know I think I'm going to go you know, out and then, you know, maybe to the park. You know, it's just, yeah. it's, again, it's this whole nonchalant. It's like, yeah, you know, I'll go to Arizona and then I'm going to go to Mars. Like I think this and, and the uh, the next uh, two-page spread really speaks to the fact that he 
still has some vestiges of his humanity left that he would want to go back to Arizona where it all began and that in the, the silent pages with him looking through the wreckage of the uh, the laboratory he sees the picture of him and Janie where he changed and uh, back the way he was in the place where he had spent so much time and I think he was uh, he was surprised by that it was the news of Janie that really start first started to set him off and he as you said has a little some humanity left and he needed that memory before he was going to go and do what he's going to do do we really need to see his, uh, his, his, well, is that his fat man or is that his little boy? <laughs> I've been wondering how they're going to deal with that through the whole movie, actually. <laughs> they put those little squares around it. Is he just wearing the underwear the whole time? <laughs> from, uh, no, from what I understand, uh, they're going to leave nothing to the imagination. Okay. Hey now. That, that's, that's what I've heard, that when they film it, it's going to be, uh, as they say, full frontal. So a movie for the whole family. So looking up at, at page 20, we kind of see, you know, a faraway view, and then he's looking up at this red dot in the in the sky, which which is, I'm assuming, is Mars. And then we get a, you know, a, a close-up, and then we get a, a reverse view where we're, you know, almost looking down at him, and, and it's almost like he's, you know, smiling. It's like he, he looked up at Mars, you know, sees it, and, it, you know, it's like he knows what he has to do or what he's going to do, and, you know, just goes on and... and and does it. I also I looked at that. I almost thought he looked up, saw Mars, and saw peace. He saw he was going to be. He just saw a peaceful place, and that's why he needed to go there. Again, yeah. not knowing what the, was coming yet. Well, there's an there's see? another. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No good, man. Oh well, there's another little uh, clue about that in here. Um, the the test base sign that's on the ground in Arizona says Perdolorum ad Astra. Which kind of, I guess, rough, roughly translate in, translates in Latin to, like, through adversity or through pain to the stars. I guess which that's kind definitely of, what happened to him, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he just went through this absolutely horrible experience, and it's kind of, I think it illustrates the point that, that to him that was kind of his last, kind of the last straw for him. It's like, okay, I'm not part of you people anymore, you know, and he just leaves. I wonder what his reaction would have been had he not had that fight with Lori, had she not left him in his mind, like because she, she was going back to him, but he didn't know that he was already gone. But had she, they not had that fight, and then he was in, he had that altercation, he had the the attack, if you will, by by the reporter. He was if he still had Lori to go back to, would he have? Because now I thought I have no reason to stay here. I need to go. How could it have been different? I, I almost think it's. I mean, that may be part of it, but to me, I think it's the effect the unintentional effects that he's had on all these other people, you know, the, the reporter pointing out the fact that, you know, you know, Moloch's got cancer, Danny Slater's got cancer. I think that had more of an impact on his decision than Laurie leaving. Yeah, he says on the one page, it seems I'm incapable of cohabiting safely, either emotionally or physically. Perhaps you must tell Ms. Jaspasic and her your superiors that I'm leaving. So maybe he realized, well, I'm not, I'm not emotionally able, able to live with Lori. I'm not physically able to live with any other people. If he really sees himself as a cancerous threat, he's taking himself out of the equation. Well, I found him. He, yeah. he was with Janie a uh, comparatively shorter time than he was with Lori. He was with Lori for 20 years. Yeah. So, so if he was really the cause, is truly the cause of her cancer, you know, how sick should Lori be at this point if, if, that, if that is true? Yeah, that that was the thing that always threw me off when when I was reading it. It's like, well, that doesn't make sense because she, 
exactly like you said, she, he was with her a lot longer, and she's not even close to being sick. So something to sit right with me, and, and as we'll, you know, we'll see moving forward, we'll, we'll figure out what all that is. All right. So. Well, I think he was with. I thought he was with Janie Slater longer because he becomes Doctor Manhattan in 1960, and then he's still with her when the Keen Act is in effect in 77. It isn't until the Crime Busters meeting that he even meets Laurie Jaspersic, which we thought was like around 64, 65. You know, when she was about right. you know 16, 17, she's about you know. And they say it's later on. She they were together for 20 years. So and this right. is 1985. Well, there you go. There's your 20 years. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Plus, she's smoking a cigarette in every panel, so. Right. Yeah. Well, as we'll see in the pros later on, it says Lori was born in 1949. So, and I think he first met up with her when she was 16, which would make that, you know, 1965. Right. So that, 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 that's just about right. That makes sense. I, I was just mistaken on the timeline, that's all. We'll forgive you. It's okay. So after. Thanks, buddy. After, uh, after John leaves. For Mars, we uh, Don breaks over the over the city, and our friend Rorschach has paid a visit to uh, get his new frontiersman again. Yeah, and then and then I love the I love the. Uh, how about you? I see the world didn't end yesterday. And he goes, "Are you are, sure? Are you sure? Yep. Well, when they, when they see the next headline, maybe it has. Yeah. And again, we see the black freighter, um, also adding another layer to the storytelling going. You know, going along parallel with what's going on. You know, I began to weep again, dear God, who would protect them? You know, the the United States is uh, the United States only you know protection against Russian attack is gone now. Then the other thing on on 22, we see the sign for the Prometheum Cab Company, and I know this is something that that John had, had brought up previously, and I, unfortunately due to the technical difficulty, I think we might have lost that. But you know, Prometheus brought light to. You know, fire to man or light to man, however you you want to you want to say it. And the 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 sign outside the Promethean Cab Company says "Bringing Light to the World." So again, we have this double reference. You know, this this hidden reference to you know, to what's going on. Wow, you must have the absolute version because that's really small type. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Once once you go absolute, you'll never go back. Now, I'm just reminded of something on twenty three, the very last panel, as they're you know quarantining the room and. You see, they're putting the the bra in the container that Doctor Manhattan was holding earlier during uh, Janie's story about how the way he looks at things, he can't, like he can't remember what they are and doesn't particularly care. And it also reminds me of something else that I forgot to mention during the fight, the aftermath of the fight, when we comment on their arousal. For, for what it's worth, don't forget, Janie wasn't really wearing anything under that trench coat. She ran out pretty quick, pretty upset. She pretty much had a robe in the trench coat, and that's about it. Yeah, I meant to mention that fight sequence. Is that how you guys took it? To? I took it as yeah, she wasn't wearing any clothes. She just put on her her, her robe and, and and bolted out the door. So I, I thought that was interesting. So I'm, I'm glad somebody else caught that too. But and then it you know it really brings it home on page 23 that you know without Doctor Manhattan, Jamie or I'm, I'm sorry, Lori is just you know basically you know useless. That yeah. they have they have no use for her. You know and treat her in this in on this page as such i mean you know she's now that manhattan's gone she's she's definitely going to be out and they could care less what happens to her it also illustrates the on the grander scale what what we're what's going on as the uh i believe the fbi or the uh, military agent says the linchpin of america's strategy superiority has apparently gone to mars but you're right i am in big trouble and you're in big trouble and we're all in big trouble as we see the newspaper headline that rorschach leaves on dan's sleeping body Dr. Manhattan leaves Earth. So now the world knows Dr. Manhattan's gone. Yeah. 
and then I love the fact that, you know, they, they go through all the trouble of, you know, showing him, you know, break through the door in the first, in, in the beginning, and then he gets the locksmith out to replace it, and then, you know, again, we see him, he just kicks the door in again, just, you know, like it's nothing, doesn't even give it a second thought. And there he is eating Dan's food again, too. No, he steals the, the cologne. Yeah. But if you remember during the uh, the scene at the news vendor, um, when he's holding the sign, he's asked, give me a Gazette as well, and it's the Gazette he's giving Dan. Dr. Manhattan yeah. leaves Earth. And again, at the time, that, that's another clue, because, I mean, at, at this point, you know, you, you're not, you know, you haven't quote seen Rorschach. Yeah, we, we've been saying that because we established it in the first issue, but yeah. Yeah. We, we know that now. Or we're, we're learning that. Then we get another reference on page 25 about the whole, you know, superhero comics versus pirate comics, and it gives a little bit more explanation as to, you know, what happened to, you know, to superhero comics and why, you know, everyone gravitated towards you know, pirate comics. We also see our next headline that I believe looks like it's evening now, and we see the headline, this is the consequences of, of the direct result of the reporter's accusations. Russia invades Afghanistan. There's now looking to be a war that everyone everyone is now scared of because, as we we know, we don't have Doctor Manhattan anymore in the United States. And once once Bernie sees this headline in the very center um, of the page, there's no background at all as he looks. Nope. And all you see is a little like uh, reaction lines, and all of a sudden he's like, uh, "Go ahead, you can have you can have my hat. You know, take the comic. Go ahead." Nothing matters anymore. Not when and we all got to look out for each other. His whole philosophy changes once he sees that the Russians have invaded Afghanistan. It's exactly the opposite of what he was telling the younger kid before. You know, every man's got to stand on his own. You know, everyone's got to pull his own weight. Exactly the opposite now. You know, we all got to look out for each other, right? And then all you'll notice on the on the bottom of the page the the it's where it says the New York Gazette and gives the headline. You know, the other. The other papers that we've seen or the other shots has been like Sunday edition or whatever. This says, it doesn't even say final edition, it just says final and then you get New York Gazette. So again, it's like this whole, you know, this is, this is it, this is the end. And then he nail, puts the nail on the coffin door with in a final analysis yeah. in the last panel of the page. Yeah. And then we, we see the, uh, the war room, the evaluations of what this is going to mean. What happens when, if, if a nuclear war, you know, stands out and, you see Richard Nixon actually trying to discern is losing the East Coast an acceptable loss? And probably the best favorite line in here was something like, "I really oh here's I always thought I always kind of hoped that the big decision would rest with somebody else." You know, he really didn't think he'd see this in his lifetime. Not when you have Doctor Manhattan around. Yeah. It's so funny too how the guys in the war room are are tense and and you know on edge and everything. And then the picture is of Doctor Manhattan. He just looks like he's having fun. He's just walking around. Enjoying Mars, it's kind of relaxing, yeah. and it's almost like the photo of him and JD from uh, uh, back in the day before he changed. It's almost like the last vestige of his humanity that he's holding on to, as he's on this new yeah. planet and this new frontier. Yeah, and I love the comment. It's like if he wanted to live on a red planet, he should have stayed home. Mm. You know that basically the, the spreading of you know communism is is starting to become a reality, and he didn't have to go to Mars for the to to see that. One of, one of the things I picked up online, and I, I don't know how you could, I guess you could kind of gather this up from, from here, but apparently the folks in the picture are all Nixon's, you know, cronies. You know, you got supposedly on the on the bottom of page 26, it's it's alluded that um, that's Henry Kissinger. Oh, definitely. It sure looks like him. It definitely is, yeah. Yeah, and then at the top 
on the top of page 27, the guy on the left is supposed to be G. Gordon Liddy. Yeah, he's got a cigarette in his mouth, and Liddy was uh, a, a chain smoker. So the one staying in Washington? Yeah. Yeah, that looks right. like yeah, yeah. Yeah. Profile reminds me. Sure. Or mostly bald, I should say. Yep. And then again, we see the nuclear you know, symbols, the radiation symbols that are popping up all over the place that have been, you know, kind of the, the symbol of this issue. And again, the whole right. conversation of the uh, of the planning of this 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 planning this analysis intertwines with what's going on with Manhattan on Mars. You know, that's pretty breathtaking. You know, and that's the view is is breathtaking. But the final final few lines here are talking about the wind. The wind's a force of nature. It's totally impartial. And if you turn the page, totally indifferent. And that's pretty much where Doctor Manhattan is right now, indifferent to to us. It's like he has this one last bit of humanity before he ascends to godhood and he's just t- trying to reconcile the two. He's looking down at a photo of the man he used to be and then he looks up at the stars at what he's becoming. And then we see on this last page too that the layout, you know, again the symmetry thing, the layout of the panel, the, w- the way this page is laid out panel-wise is identical to the way it's laid out on page one. You know, we get three panels at the top and one big panel at the bottom. Again, the symmetry we've been noticing throughout the whole series. Yeah, I can't wait till we get to issue five. That's That's going to be 80% of the conversation. That about wraps up issue three, then. Uh, we leave Dr. Manhattan on Mars and the world on the brink of nuclear war. What yeah. a happy story. Then we get, on the pros side of things, we get the final, what's going to be the final you know, chapter, the final um, excerpt from the Under the Hood book from Hollis Mason. And it just kind of goes through and... Um, you know, gives us the kind of the last days of the Minutemen kind of thing. And it talks about, uh, you know, the, the House Un-American Activities Commission and how that all came about, you know, some, you know, how some of them retired. And then, um, you know, it seems like things, you know, they kind of talk about how, or Hollis talks about how things got better for the comedian after this happened, whereas for the rest of them, it all kind of, you know, went downhill. They all pretty much retired and, you know, and, and just kind of hung it up, you know, at, at this point. Um it's really interesting how they intertwine the historical uh, facts in, in along with the superhero story. Um, they they put McCarthyism and the HUAC committee and all that stuff in the context of the superhero world and everything else that goes on with the um, – later he's talking about how uh, the beatniks and, and – the basically more is taking the superhero thing and melding it with the, the history that you and I know and coming up with this great uh, you know hybrid of the two. It's really cool. I had this thought yeah. that I was I was hoping to uh, not not for today's uh, this episode, but for maybe our next episode we can look at. As you said, we have our our common history, you know, intertwined with this story. Is is, is there a clear point in the Watchmen story where, you know, the history of the United States as as we know it, where the Watchmen history diverged from that and really started to see the changes? And my my thought was, is that the creation, the genesis of Doctor Manhattan? And I think that's a conversation maybe we can hold on to for next the next issue. Well, that's something that Hollis Mason brings up in the prose piece as well, is that everything changed in the March of 1960 with Dr. Manhattan. And before everyone was a masked hero or a costumed adventurer, this was the dawn of the superhero. Right. Somebody with super superpowers beyond just being able to have a good right hook and to dodge a punch, which is basically what all the original Minutemen could do. This too, I mean, you, you see the, the effects of Dr. Manhattan and, you know, the superhero um, when you read that uh, headline that Russia invades Afghanistan because in our in real time that happened in 1979, but in the book Doctor Manhattan was around to stop that, you know. So now you kind of see that reality is kind of breaking off. Maybe starting to shift back. 
Yeah. This is where the real history diverges. I mean, up to the point of Dr. Manhattan as a nuclear deterrent, the history of the Watchmen world and our history is pretty close. I mean, the super the superheroes really don't have that much of an impact on, on history other than pop culture being more uh, in tune with pirates than superheroes. But once Dr. Manhattan comes on the scene as a nuclear deterrent and as our ace in the hole in the Cold War, that's when the history really diverges from uh, from right. the, our history. You know, the winning Vietnam, the, 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 not, the Russians not invading, uh, Richard Nixon having the, having the Constitution changed so he can remain in office. Exactly. That's a real good point you made, Ken. Yeah. One of the most interesting things that to me that came up in the prose piece was the whole bit about the hooded justice. Um, right. And they, they talk about, you know, who the hooded, you know, who they thought the hooded justice was and that, you know, a, a person named uh, Rolf Mueller um, disappeared about the same time um, that hooded justice kind of disappeared. And to me, there's a strong inference that, you know, it was the comedian that killed him. Um, you know, that, that basically they, they, you know, took him as, you know, somebody that, um, you know, kind of fell into the whole red menace, you know, House on American Activities thing, McCarthyism, and that, you know, the comedian was dispatched. Maybe one of his first assignments really was to go, you know, the government found out that, that Rolf Mueller and the Hooded Justice were the same, you know, one and the same, and it was, you know, he that, that did him in. Maybe that's how they tested his loyalty. Yeah. Yeah. Notice in the picture of uh, Sally's wedding, he, who's right behind Sally, is the comedian close by. Going back to what Russ was saying, he also had a grudge against uh, Hooded Justice for, you know, breaking up his little party with Sally Jupiter right. in the earlier issue. Exactly, so. exactly. And then lastly, we kind of find, you know, two things. One, Ozymandias kind of came into the fold in 1960, and Laurie um, Jupiter was born in 1949. And then, of course, Hollis Mason retired. It's kind of interesting. He retired from the police force and as Night Owl in 1962. Um, and they talk about how, you know, basically he retired and, you know, this young upstart who he wouldn't name, which we all know to be Dan Driver, um, came up to him about, you know, come, you know, basically taking over the mantle for him and kind of, you know, showed him his, his cool neat gadgets and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, she even refers to at the very, very end, uh, Sally talking about how, uh, her daughter, Lori, is already looking to take, to follow her mother's footsteps. Yeah, which I kind of took is, is not being accurate that that's, that was Sally's interpretation of what Lori wanted to do, not really Lori's interpretation of what Lori wanted to do. Possibly. Um, and how, and Hollis just took it as, you know, kind of a face value kind of thing. So ends issue three. So, so ends, ends issue, issue three. three, dudes. Anybody uh, have any final thoughts? Beware the black freighter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad it was so upbeat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next so issue, Disneyland. I was going to say, yeah. why didn't Disney make this movie? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that wraps up another another issue we should be releasing issue four here in two weeks um barring any any other technical or uh, other difficulties and we should have be back up to full strength by then um i just wanted again to give a shout out to brad and frank over at half hour wasted again if, if you guys are listening to our podcast and aren't listening to half hour wasted shame on you um you know those guys do great a great job and, and uh, great work and they've got some really great episodes and some stuff that they've done. So definitely check out Half Hour Wasted. Let's not forget another great podcast in the uh, the Comic Farm uh, podcast family. That would be Too Old to Grow Up, 
hosted by our own Legion of Dudes, Ken Morgan. Thank you. Totally awesome nostalgia podcast. It's one of my personal favorites mm. for Sheezy. Thank you. Not necessarily, but certainly appreciate it. Yeah, problem. and if anybody was uh, around in in the mid '80s, definitely listen to the Pac-Man Fever episode. That'll <laughs> that'll take you back and make you chuckle for sure. You know, I went to tell Ken I had to go to the arcade after listening to that and get some out of my get some Donkey Kong out of my system. There you go. Good luck finding one. Oh, we have one here in Pittsburgh. Oh, nice. We, I, I I can't even. I mean, other than a a small arcade that just has the old you know the stand ups or the shoot ups. Um, I, I I don't even. I can't even. I, I don't even know where one would be. I'll shoot you the website after the issue, the episode here. Thanks for joining cool. us for issue three of uh, Who Reads the Watchmen. I'd like to shout out to my fellow dudes, Ken Morgan, uh, Adam Umack, who couldn't be here for most of the episode, and Johnny M, who also had to bow out. Sorry about that. Russell Latham was our monitor. And from the Legion of Substitute Dudes, our good friend Station, Dan Ashland. Thanks for sitting in, Dan. No problem. We also want to thank uh, PanelToPanel.net for their support. Uh, please go check out their site. They have a lot of really cool stuff over there. We invite all email comments to comments at legionofdudes.com, or you can respond to us at the Half Hour Wasted forums on the comicforums.com. Anything else you guys wanted to add before we uh, say goodbye to these fine people? I think that's it. That's it. Thanks okay. for listening. Thanks. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. I believe I can see.